From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News and this is your host, Kate Moody. We've just finished this week's show and there was lots to get into. We're bringing you some of the biggest stories of the week, including cash's comeback as the cost of living climbs. Some really interesting data starting to emerge about how the, the cost of living crisis is impacting customer behaviour and some great discussion around what fintech really needs to do to start helping in that space. We've also looked at Heopagos' raise in LATAM in the payment space. Again, obviously, the LATAM space is going from strength to strength. I feel like we're talking about it every week, but another really exciting news story, another really exciting company that are helping to innovate in the, in the infrastructure space in, in LATAM. And also, Domino's dips out of Italia. So again, a big, big story as, as Domino's says goodbye to the Italian market. But what can we learn from that from a fintech perspective? And, and what do our guests think about pineapple on pizza? We get into all this and much more. So let's get into it. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series, weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around, such as... On rampy. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stablecoins. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. Welcome to episode 654 of Fintech Insider. I'm Kate Meady and I'm joined this week on Fintech Insider News by my 11FS colleague, Nicole Perry, Strategy Director for Business Design and Growth. How are you doing, Nicole? I'm very well, thanks, Kate. I'm actually in Stockholm this afternoon. Anything, anything exciting happening in Stockholm today? Um, well, it's a beautiful city, lots of water, which I really love. Um, so yeah, hoping to do a bit of exploring after, after we've had our chat. Some little Fintech reconnaissance on the ground <laughs> yeah perhaps i'll go and seek it out shall i yeah hunt it down hunt it down um but anyway as always we're joined by some very special guests so making their debut full panel appearance on fintech insider we have katie janos small co-founder and editor at upana welcome to the show katie can you give our listeners a, a recap on you and, and upana please yeah hi kate uh, nicole it's a real pleasure to be here so thank, thanks for having me uh, Upana is a new service that covers digital finance in Latin America. So we have a team of journalists that, across the region that cover fintech, digital banking, payments, crypto regulation, uh, and with a with a trusted source of information when it comes to Latin America's digital finance ecosystem. Um, my background is as a journalist. I started the new service back in 2018 after a fairly long career covering traditional financial services. It's a busy time for fintech news in, in Latin, so I suspect you're being kept on your toes. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Looking forward to, to getting your take on the news. It's also a fintech insider debut for Brian Burns, head of personal finance at Moneybox. Welcome, Brian. Uh, great to have you on the show. Could you give our listeners uh, a, a little introduction to you and to Moneybox? Absolutely. Uh, thanks for having me. So my name is Brian Burns, head of personal finance at Moneybox. I am a financial advisor by trade. Uh, I started my career in private banking and wealth management and then moved into the more digital space maybe five or six years ago. In April of this year, I joined Moneybox as their head of personal finance. Uh, for anyone that doesn't know, Moneybox is a award-winning digital wealth manager. Uh, I've brought savings, investing, 
retirement and home buying all together into one app. Our aim is to help people in all of those areas basically build wealth with confidence. And we've now got 850,000 customers in the UK, 3 billion assets under administration, and the leading provider of lifetime ISAs in the UK. Brilliant. And obviously, you know, the fact that you are a financial advisor, does that mean that we can consider your comments on the show as actual financial advice? Or? Absolutely not. I must put that disclaimer in. <laughs> okay, good to, good to sense check up front. Brilliant. Uh, and with that, let's get into the news. As per usual, there's a lot of it. So first up from the BBC, the cost of living, people turning back to cash as prices rise. People are going back to cash to keep tight control on their spending as living costs soar, according to new research by the post office. Post offices handled £801 million in personal cash withdrawals in July, the most since records began five years ago. That's up more than 20% from a year ago. The increase in the cost of living is putting a squeeze on people's finances as incomes fail to keep up with prices rising faster than they have done for 40 years. The post office put the extra volume of withdrawals at its 11,500 branches down to more people turning to cash to help manage their budgets on a week-by-week and often day-by-day basis. Brian, you're working with a, a digital savings app. I'd love to get your, your thoughts on this first. What was your reaction to this? What, what are your thoughts on people moving to cash in times of economic hardship? I don't think it's too surprising. Uh, the cost of living crisis, it's pretty extreme circumstances. I think we had Martin Lewis yesterday, who is the trusted voice on all of these things, comparing the outcome or the result of the cost of living crisis is going to be similar uh, to the same scale as the pandemic in terms of a catastrophe for people's uh, personal finances. So we saw the change in behavior in lots of different ways from people after the pandemic. So I think we're going to see similar changes of behavior when it comes to people's personal finances. So either taking on new habits or reverting to old ones, as in the case of reverting back to cash. So um, it's not too surprising given the scale of kind of what we're seeing in terms of the rates of inflation and general cost of living pressures. And is this, you know, is this a case of people trying to find a sense of control that they're not finding elsewhere, like they're not finding from their bank accounts? I think it is to a certain extent. I think it's also about our human nature and how we kind of view spending. A lot of the innovation around fintech has been about removing friction and removing pain points when it comes to buying things, basically, um, which has been positive in in lots of different ways, but potentially not necessarily for trying to cut back on spending and, and budgeting, for example. It's extremely easy to spend on contactless, extremely easy to spend uh, online. And for a lot of people, it's only when you get to the end of the month that you add these things up and realize that the, the money doesn't stretch to cover all of the the essentials. So, Sometimes I think it might be controversial, but a little bit of friction on these things can be a good idea. And people are almost introducing friction into their own finances by withdrawing cash, putting it into different piles for different spending needs, um, and then budgeting and budgeting that way. So it's a little bit about control and it's a little bit about human behavior when it comes to spending. And how do you guys strike that balance of money box? Obviously, it's a tricky tricky balance to strike. Yeah, I think when it, when it comes to money box... <sighs> The story on this one doesn't really change depending on economic circumstances. It's all about building trust and it's also about empowering customers as well. So you want to try and inspire people uh, to have confidence in whatever their financial goals is, whether that's making their money stretch to the end of the month, whether that's building up a emergency savings pot, whether it's saving for a first home, saving for retirement. These are all different financial goals. And what we want to do is do is try and give people confidence regardless of which one of those is a is a priority for them. So we try and do that um, 
basically with every part of the Moneybox app, just making it as clear as possible. And then there's also a huge, huge educational uh, awareness point that is part of my role uh, at Moneybox. So I'm afraid the Moneybox customers are probably going to get sick of my voice and face over the course of the next three or six months. But we do have a huge responsibility to try and educate people through times like these um, and make it as easy as they possibly can do, pass on whatever education we have. Um, and pass on whatever tools that they need to take control of their personal finances, regardless of whether their goals are any of those ones that I mentioned. Oh, yes. Definitely a key point around education. Um, Have you seen any shifts already in the types of savings behaviours in in the app? Are you seeing people looking for more advice or changing their savings targets? So we've seen small shifts here or there. I think on the advice or or guidance piece that has remained consistent. So from my perspective, I think a lot of the innovations around uh, fintech and personal finance has been about giving people options. And I think the democratization of these tools has come a long way. And that is the stated goal of a lot of fintech personal finance providers is give people options, give people's tools, put them, put them in control. I think what we need now um, is a little bit of context for people and a little bit of personalization. So what account is right for me? How much should I be saving per month to hit X, Y, or Z kind of financial goals? So we're seeing a lot of demand for that. People looking for a little bit of help, a little bit of context based on their personal uh, situations. And in terms of wider trends, um, people are still saving, investing, buying homes, uh, planning for their retirement. People opening savings accounts with us has been very, very consistent so far this year, if not up a little bit. Um, people buying homes, again, we've had record number of mortgage applications in, in June uh, with Moneybox um, and record number of lifetime ISAs opened as well. So it's not saying that there isn't huge pressure on people's budgets and money at this stage, but they are still doing uh, the saving, investing, retirement, home buying, that sort of stuff. So we're trying to empower them as much as possible to be able to hit those goals as easy as they possibly can. Well, yeah, no, it's great to hear that you, know, you guys are still still seeing growth. And I think we talked about it in the show last week when we look at the US, you know, that the idea that often these impacts are felt by the people at the bottom of the pile first and then kind of feed their way up through. So it'd be interesting to kind of see over time how that, how that shifts. Nicole, what was your reaction to this story? So I think there's a few angles to it. And I think what What'll be really interesting to, is to see how fintech responds and what might be times of absolute survival for some people. Um, and I have wondered before how effective fintech is when things are really, really bad. You know, fintech makes life seem quite aspirational and savings targets and roundups and assumes that you've got discretionary spend and discretionary income. But if you're in the position where your income's been completely wiped out or you were already living on a very you know, narrow edge in terms of what you had to spend and how much contingency you had. I find myself thinking about, well, what fintechs are out there that support that sort of situation? Um, And I think that it's really important for fintechs to be really sensitive to this matter and that tone of voice will be so important. You know, I'm a Monzo customer and I get notifications and emails and whatnot about going on holiday. But actually, if I was in a position where I was really, feel, really, really feeling the squeeze of the cost of living crisis to the point that I was worrying about my finances that I might not be able to put the lights on or, or buy the food that I would normally buy, that would just feel really insensitive. 
Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see how they respond, whether it shies away from or whether it's really leaned into. And I think the ones that do lean into it will be the ones that earn people's trust, you know, for life at, at this time. And yeah, I was wondering if Moneybox had considered that in terms of their comms strategy or how you're engaging with your customers. Yeah, absolutely. I think the key word for us is is empathy kind of right now. So you don't want to be, yeah, you don't want to be putting in front of people, oh, save up for a holiday fund if they're trying to uh, meet the cost of their energy bills. You don't necessarily want to uh, be suggesting, oh, top up your pension or make additional retirement contributions again if people yeah. are very much focused on, on the short term. So Empathy, as I say, the key word, but it's also meeting customers kind of wherever their goals are because there are still people um, focused on that side of things and we need to help them. But we also very much need to help people that are struggling with the day-to-day and their bills. And as I say, from our perspective, that's where the education piece comes in and just being as loud and as vocal as possible with all the tools that we can give people to try and help them uh, budget and make their money stretch a, a little bit further. And as you say, there's lots of different customers that are in different positions and personalisation will be key to understanding who those customers are and striking the balance right. Um, and yeah, again, I think it will really expose what how good that kind of insight and analytics capability is when we see how personalised they're able to get in an environment where lots of different people are in lots of different circumstances. Monzo keeps telling me how my spend has gone up each month and I can't work out yet if I find that helpful or stressful. I'm still I'm still trying to decide for myself. And I mean I'm luckily, you know, relatively comfortable. So it's um yeah, it's it's definitely a really difficult balance to strike. And Katie, what's what's happening with, with the relationship with cash in Latin America? Obviously we get very excited in the UK about you know, cashless society and cash kind of be on the decline, but I'm guessing that might not be the case in, in your part of the world. Yeah, I think there's really um, there's a lot of use cases for cash still in, in Latin America, and the consensus among among the people that I speak to is that cash is is not not going away, even though there has been sort of massive digitalization over the last couple of years. Um, you know, there's still a lot of a lot of people who you know never fully digitalized their finances and still just use a lot of cash on a day to day basis and. Um, I think that that's gonna that's gonna be around for a while in Latin America. I think the other side of that is the cost of living crisis, which is being felt a lot in Latin America as well. Um, and I think that what you mentioned, Nicole, it's going to be interesting to see how fintechs respond to that, how the digital finance industry responds to that. There are some of the more established fintechs in Latin America who grew up during prior crises, talking like six or eight years ago. Um, but there's a lot of startups that, um, that, that came into, uh, I guess they lived through the pandemic, which was a bit of a crisis in itself, shall we say. But, but, but there's a real cost of living crisis that we're seeing at the moment. I think it's going to be a new test for a lot of fintechs. And I think that, that what you mentioned, Nicole, about the, the way that fintechs communicate with their users will be really interesting as well. It's, um, it's not just a sort of a resurgence of cash that we're seeing in the UK. We're also seeing lots of, uh, sort of advice about some of these really old style savings mechanisms taking off again. I, I think there was a particular video on, on TikTok that went viral around some physical budget binders, you know, people putting their money into into binders. I don't know if any of you guys watched that, had, a, had an opinion on it. Yeah, I think it probably, in, in my mind, it probably went viral because people like to be able to take kind of practical action in these circumstances. 
Um, so they see something like that and they're like, okay, there's lots of factors outside of my control in this cost of living crisis in terms of inflation, my bills going up, but this is something that I can do that looks practical, um, probably is uh, helpful as well. So I'm, I'm not surprised that that um, resonated with people uh, at all. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm, I'm excited, I think, as we've talked about, you know, I'm excited to see how, how fintechs respond to this and whether we start to see, as you say, like Brian, like more of them thinking about the frictions that they've taken away and starting to think if we redress the, redress the balance at all. Yeah, I think it's going to be a new challenge. So a lot of fintechs have grown up in a world of extremely low inflation, extremely low uh, interest rates, um, mostly a bull market for 10 years or so. Um, so this is all new to the majority of fintechs out there. So yeah, it's going to be interesting about how we adapt kind of as a group. I think though that there are increasing numbers of fintechs and banks that are allowing people to use that envelope model of budgeting in the digital world. Um, so in Colombia, there's a very popular digital wallet called Neki, which which has a, they call it bolsillos, like little pockets where you can kind of divide up your money within the app. So you have money dedicated to different, um, different purposes. There's a, there's an SME, um, bank as well in the States called Relay, which offers the same thing. So I think that when it comes to that kind of budgeting or, or those kind of systems, sure, maybe cash is one way of doing it, but it doesn't have to be cash and that fintechs are responding and offering that kind of solution in the digital world as well. Absolutely. Um, sadly, going to have to move on. I'm sure we could talk about this all day. But um, if you want to find out more about how the rising cost of living is impacting fintech, go check out episode 647 on Fintech Insider Insights with guests from Chetwood Financial, Innovate Finance and Mina Technologies. So next up, Argentinian fintech startup Heopagos raises $35 million in a funding round. This story comes from TechCrunch. Heopagos a payments infrastructure startup based in Buenos Aires has raised $35 million in a round led by Riverwood Capital. Founded in 2013, the Argentinian startup serves as a white-label infrastructure software provider with the aim of giving businesses the ability to launch financial services. Heopagos also offers its own set of open APIs so that clients can create and manage their own user experience if they prefer. Today, the company has a presence in 15 Latin American countries and says it facilitates more than 150 million transactions with a processed volume of $5 billion per year. High-profile customers include Santander, BBVA and Chile's Banco Estado. The financing marks the company's first ever institutional funding. Katie, great to have you here to discuss this one and probably correct my horrendous pronunciation. So what does Heopagos' success tell us about the rise of, of payments across Latin America? Well, I think that, I mean, this is a great funding round for, for Heopagos. Uh, and I think that it in in some way reflects the the growth of digital payments, which we, we touched on a minute ago, right? The, the move away from cash and, and the move towards digital payments. But I think it also touches on another trend which we're seeing globally and also in Latin America, which is the growth of those integrated systems, integrated architecture across Latin America, right? The the move towards open banking um, in Latin America, in some places it's regulated, in some places it's not. Even in those places where it's not regulated, increasingly we're seeing fintechs and banks looking at ways of connecting and integrating through APIs um, to offer enhanced services. So I think that this funding round kind of reflects both of those those trends in Latin America. Absolutely. You know, we talk a lot about Brazil on this show. You know, are we overlooking Argentina? 
Yeah, I think that Latin America is a huge and hugely varied region. Um, you know, in Brazil and Mexico, they're the biggest economies, so they naturally, I guess, get the most attention. But Argentina is a really interesting country. It's got some really impressive technology talent there, highly skilled workforce, some really amazing fintech companies and technology companies that have started there and, and grown internationally. So absolutely, Argentina is a really interesting country from a fintech point of view. From an operational payments point of view, it's also quite interesting in the sense that the regulator there uh, moves, shall we say, decisively on regulation, but doesn't always give the market a whole lot of heads up and time to kind of get to grips with with new changes. So it, actually, operationally, I think it's not the easiest market to, to operate in. Um, but from a kind of tech development point of view, it's a, it's a pretty cool country. That's really great to, to understand. I mean, my very limited understanding of Argentina. I think the other angle that I find interesting is obviously it's fairly intense economic situation. You know, we get upset about inflation of you know, 10% in the UK. And yeah, I believe like the last time I checked, you know, the the inflation in Argentina is more like 60% or it was meant to go even higher this year, like a, an insane level of like really consistent inflation, like year on year on year. What impact has, has that had? I mean, it is. It's massive, the inflation in Argentina. And at the moment, they're going through a particularly intense, intense moment in that respect. Um, you know, from a, from a, from a personal finance point of view, it makes it intense, very difficult for one to manage their finances. Um, what, um, you know, you hear stories about jobs being requoted and, you know, doubling in price and, and things like that. Um, so I think that that kind of adds to what I mentioned earlier that it's a that it's a difficult market to to operate in. Absolutely. Um, and how you know we obviously we talk about the success of of, of Latam fintech. How universal do you think that is? You know, is it across the whole of Argentina? Is it concentrated in particular sort of cities? What what is the kind of the distribution of, of fintech uptake? That's a good question, and I'm not sure that I could really answer that. I would tend to think that there is more uptake in the cities. Than in the rural areas, um, rural areas in Latin America in general often have connectivity issues and things like that. Um, but I, I wouldn't, you know, bet the house on it either. <laughs> no worries at all. Um, Nicole, what what was your reaction to this one? So I was really enthused by this story. There's, you know, a couple of you know a couple of really exciting parts to it. I, I always love a bootstrapping story. I think it shows that pursuing, you know, venture capital or angel investment, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be the way in that actually bootstrapping, you know, still exists and it can still be successful. And then it, you know, takes that fintech on a really exciting growth path at the right time. Um, so I loved hearing about that. And then, yeah, I just loved hearing about the kind of increasing competition that it's bringing to the market because the more competition that's there, um, the more choice exists. And I was kind of thinking about the impact that it has on the whole ecosystem. Because if you think about it being more cost effective, quicker and easier for merchants, you know, having more of these um, kind of payments infrastructure choices, they're happier, they perform better, they're more innovative, they, um, you know, they can drive more sales, which means more transactions, which means a healthier payment system, which means more innovation again. And you get this really cyclical healthy pipeline of of activity um and payments is something that's been monopolized for so long in various different parts of the globe so i always love hearing about activity and payments brian do you get as excited about payments 
Not necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> not my not my sweet spot, if I'm perfectly honest. Bring me on to pensions and I'll I'll get excited. Um, have you been following sort of Latin American fintech more broadly? Is there anything that has excited you in that that part of the world? Uh, I think in a in a broad sense, I think there's just huge wealth of opportunity. I think there's so many stats out there that show how much of a untapped market it is. Um, but absolutely, Katie would be the expert on that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Um, Katie, I thought it was interesting that we've covered quite a few stories around you know, LATAM raises recently on the show and a trend that we saw, I think we were talking about uh, stories rise in Mexico. Um, you know, they obviously lent quite heavily on that industry experience of their founding team. Um, and I think, you know, that the founders of Heopagos, oh, sorry, I massacred that again, sorry. Um, Heopagos, that's all right. Heopagos, okay, I'll try my hardest. But they've obviously got some some great experience on their founding team as well. So how... Is that just a coincidence? Is this a trend in, in LATAM more generally? What are you seeing? Yeah, I think that um, there are probably dozens, if not hundreds, of LATAM fintechs where the founders come from um, some kind of related background, right, be it traditional finance uh, or, or, or something similar. Um, what we're seeing as a trend in Latin America, an emerging trend, I would say, is for successful fintech entrepreneurs to kind of graduate to um, to to advising or backing new entrepreneurs that are starting up their companies, right? So one example that comes to mind would be Pier Paolo Barbieri, who is the founder of Walla, um, hugely successful um, Latin American fintech. He's now launched a, a venture capital fund and is backing, you know, other other companies in, the, in that um in, in the market. So I think that we're seeing kind of a graduation, like a second generation of fintech entrepreneurship in Latin America um, as a as an emerging trend. Yeah, I thought that was very exciting as well too, because you mentioned Walla, and obviously they've been, as you say, hugely successful, but I thought it was interesting when you look at Heopagos's page, you know, they list Walla as one of their clients. So it's interesting to see the, the system starting to support itself and you know, growth, fueling more growth. And that's, that's really exciting. Um, Nicole, I mean, do you have a sp- perspective on on big bank experience coming into fintech? What, what do you think that'll contribute? I think it will be really interesting to see what impact it has on the business model. The fact that just now it's white labelling, but also they have the opportunity for open APIs. I wonder what kind of route they'll go down and pursue most. Um, the white labelling is arguably a little bit easier and the open API route requires a bit more um, relationship management with the your you know their client or I mean, maintenance of the tech, making sure that it's top of the range, that the APIs are always really healthy. Whereas, I mean, I suppose it's the same with the white labelling, but it's more like the product off the shelf. Um, so it'll be interesting to see the, you know, the impact of, of different stakeholders and what business model they'll choose to pursue and what strategy they'll go after. Casey, you got any thoughts on business models in LATAM? Yeah, I think that the consumer-facing fintechs naturally gather a huge amount of attention. Their brands are super visible. Um, but I think that there's an increasing number of Latin American fintechs that are offering back-end solutions um, and that that's obviously is necessary, but in Latin America, sometimes we think of Latin America as being like one region, but each country is very different in terms of its market dynamics, in terms of its regulations, in terms of the different players that, that act in the ecosystem. So I think that having back-end systems that can work with the unique dynamics of each market is, is super important, and that's perhaps what's what's fueling that growth as well of, of some of those um 
perhaps less flashy, the brand names are not so well known, but they're super important fintechs in their own right. Absolutely. And yeah, we're covering LATAM a lot on the moment on the show, but I still feel that we're barely scratching the surface. So um, if you'd like to find out more on the LATAM fintech scene, please go check out episode 603 of Fintech Insider Insights, where Benjamin Enser was joined by guests from Spiralum, Newbank and Prometeo to discuss what's going so right in LATAM right now. So you can dive into it in more detail there. We're going to just take a quick pause here. We'll be back very shortly. So we're going to go out on a limb here and assume that you're enjoying this podcast. We're also going to assume that, like us, you're a fintech nerd and that our podcasts, live events, video series and documentaries keep you tapped into everything that's happening across fintech and connected to the fintech community. So if you're interested in creating content that informs and entertains, then you should definitely chat to our media team and get in touch on sponsors at 11fs.com. Welcome back. Let's get into our next story. This one comes from TechCrunch. Zazoon charges employees $5 to get paid sooner. So voluntary benefits platform Zazoon has raised $25.5 million in a mixture of debt and equity. Calgary-based Zazoon closed a $12.5 million funding round co-led by Carpe Investments and Alpenglow Capital. This is alongside a $13 million loan from Canada's ATB Financial. Zazoon's platform allows small and medium-sized businesses to implement an Earned Wage Access, or EWA, program. EWA gives employees access to some of their accrued wages before the end of their payroll cycle. Zazoon funds early wage requests itself to mitigate risk on the employer side, and the service is free for companies to use, but Zazoon charges workers a $5 fee to choose how much of their wages they'd like to access up to $200. Workers can sign up for a Zazoon-branded Visa card that acts like a prepaid debit card and eliminates the $5 fee. Um, Brian, what was your what was your take on this story? Obviously, we were talking at the top of the show about cash and how that impacts different parts of society. This feels like a similar similar vein in terms of it impacting people on on more restricted budgets or potentially in more vulnerable situations. Yeah, I, I think so. I think it is probably aimed at the same sections of society, which have often been overlooked by by fintech. Um, if I look back in in my life, I. There's definitely periods where I would have paid to receive my wage earlier. It's probably not something you should admit as a financial advisor, but I was absolutely terrible with my finances in in, in my twenties. Um, and things like budgeting and cash flow, like was was very very difficult. Um, you would kind of spend your way through the month, and then you get to three or four days before payday, and you'd realize things don't necessarily stretch as as far as you needed them to. So, and that for me was still from a relatively privileged position of probably overspending socially rather than on bills and things like that. So, I think sometimes when we talk about these things, we talk about it from a position of uh, choice, as in would customers choose to do this? But I think for a lot of people, whether it's relying on cash or whether it's getting their wages paid earlier, it's it's from a position of necessity. Absolutely. Nicole, what's what's your view on earned wage access? So I had a little read of the founders of um, this fintech and it all just seems very contradictory, to be honest. They've got this driving purpose to help the most vulnerable parts of society. And then it's a bit like, well, why are you charging them, you know, five quid for the privilege of doing so? I mean, if I get to the end of the month and I need to borrow £10 and then... Um, I pay the five pounds, you'll be 50% more. It's the privilege of accessing the service. It was just not very nice to read, to be honest. But when you unpick it, it also feels like this is a strategy for them to push penetration of the prepaid debit card. 
because you avoid that fee if you take that debit card out and it all just feels a bit murky and the push on the card feels a bit kind of bullying and you know pushing people into making financial choices like taking out a new card because they desperately need that service it just yeah did not sit well with me this story I mean I suppose if you're playing devil's advocate you could say that putting that fee on is meant to be we talked about friction at the start of the show you know does that fee encourage workers to think before they access their wages you know we need to kind of get that balance right between ease of use and, and friction I suppose yeah that is a good point and I suppose it's fair but yeah, I'm just yeah not not really on board with that um, justification, I suppose. And you know the business model of earned wage, and especially what um, you know they've, the the connections they'll make with employers. There's just far more sustainable and fairer ways to to make that business model work. Um, so yeah, this one's a no for me, I'm afraid. But be keen to hear from you, Katie, about you know how earned wage access is. Um, performing in Latin America. You know, last week on the story, we talked about another one of these that also wasn't very fair. Are we seeing this kind of insidious nature of it coming to the market over there or are there genuinely helpful propositions becoming available? I think it's an interesting one because I think that there are two two sides of this coin, right? And the one on the one side, you can think this is a predatory way of of giving people access to money that's effectively theirs. Another way of thinking about it is that from a lending standpoint, um, this is a this is a differentiated way of lending, right? So to give you some context, in Latin America, salary advance fintechs are definitely like a category in their own right. There's a number of fintechs that operate in that vertical. And that's kind of the payroll lending or salary advances is kind of the, the terms that they that they use. So from a lending standpoint though, if you think about it, it's quite interesting because these companies partner with the employer when we're talking like big employers that, you know, employ thousands of people, they get access to all of that HR data from the company, right? So then they can tweak the model to offer salary advances to staff who have been with the company for a certain amount of time. They can limit the advance to a certain portion of their salary. And at the end of the day, with all of that information and those kind of uh, limits, they can offer better lending terms to a person than that person could get if they went to their bank and certainly better than if they went to a loan shark. So I think that, and then in Latin America, often this is positioned as like a corporate benefit that if you need a, if you need an emergency loan, then we have this service. So I think that when you look at it from that point of view, this is a way of offering lending at better terms. Um, you wouldn't want to get into a habit. And I think that, that as we sort of discussed earlier, financial education has a massive role to play in making sure that people don't get into some nasty spiral of needing to borrow and needing to borrow each month to, to make the end of the payroll. But you can imagine that if someone's got some unexpected expense, this is a way for them to, to take out a loan on better terms than they might otherwise have access to. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I suppose to... Nicole's point about business policy, we have seen some variation. Obviously, there are quite a few providers in this space now in, in all different parts of the world. And I think we are seeing some that are taking the same route of charging per per access to the employee. But we are seeing some, you know, I think the last time I checked, Wage Stream in the UK, for example, had more of that employee benefit model where, you know, the employer was you know, taking the cost of that and, and carrying that cost and providing it as a, as a benefit to their employees. Yeah, I suppose to your point, Nicole, sort of I noticed that 
you know, it says in the, in the in the news coverage of this one that you know employers have the option of subsidising subsidising that cost, but I, I didn't see many stats on how many were actually taking it up. I think if it's presented as an optional thing, I, I'd be interested to see how, how employers react. But um, yeah, no, I I totally agree with you, Katie. I think there are elements of this type of service which are starting to introduce like really interesting behaviours in the lending space and trying to reverse some of the uh, inequalities that have, have existed. One of the things that I like about these models is that when you access that that drawdown on your salary, it's automatically deducted from your from your next payment. So you have you know you can you can never really go into debt in, in theory. I think there's some um confusion about whether it can kind of tip you into your overdraft or things like that. Um, but I think you know, there's a real benefit to having that, that setup where you can borrow money in and automatically know that that's going to be deducted the next time your salary comes in. Like I'd love to see some some of the kind of PFMs and some of the banking apps helping customers to do that from based on their commitments, based on their bills, like helping you to kind of set that money aside automatically um, to cover your your bills and, and your lending. Yeah, I think uh, I think it could be, you know, it's one of these products that should already exist. You know what I mean? But I think what the theme that I'm starting to see from fintechs that are serving this market is they're really focused on that short term bang in terms of them being successful as a business. Because actually, if you focused on scale and really healthy partnerships, like we've talked about with the employers, there's huge opportunity there. But it's about doing it right from the start rather than, you know, seeking to get these fees at the beginning. And, you know, some we talked about last week, some strange goings on in another end wage fintech that... You know, they were skipping elements of regulatory and compliance, you know, frameworks and whatnot. But actually, if you set it up properly and you do it at scale, it could be super successful. So I think there's an opportunity for someone to come in, do, do it really right, show the benefit for both employer, for the consumer, the benefit commercially and do it at scale and do it well. Brian, one for one for money box. I mean, I guess it's a totally different proposition to savings, but I guess it's all about helping customers manage their manage their budgets and, and kind of manage their, their outgoings. Where do, where do you guys stand on it? Yeah, I think when you talk about fintech innovation and going back to the cost of living uh, crisis that we were talking about at the start, it is this will be an innovation that puts money in people's pockets, which is basically what people are looking for now. I'm similar with Nicole, kind of torn in terms of the ethics of how, say, this one in particular is delivered. It really does feel like it should be something where the employer covers the cost of it um, for the sake of, as you say, $5. That adds up massively to the individual, but it feels like it probably wouldn't as much for for the employer. So um, I think when you look at the alternatives that people have when they will be availing of a product like this, like you do see stories now in the UK about the re-emergence of loan sharks and things like that. So um, it's a it's a delicate topic. And I think if you keep people out of the, the traps of loan sharks or extremely high interest debt, if done properly, as Nicole says, I think it could be a, it could be a huge winner. So lots of lots of promise, but also lots of potential pitfalls. We'll have to keep an eye. I think this isn't a sector that's going to go away, particularly as we as we carry on in these economically challenging times. So we'll continue, I'm sure, to carry on talking about it. Um, sadly, got to move us on. So our next story comes from The Guardian. So this is a SoftBank CEO ashamed of pride in past profits as record losses prompt cost cut. SoftBank has reported a record quarterly loss of 3.1 trillion yen. So that's 19 billion pounds sterling. Uh, 
This is after the global sell-off of tech stocks prompting the Japanese conglomerate to embark on a big cost-cutting drive. Masayoshi Son, the chief executive of SoftBank, said the company was to launch a dramatic cost-cutting drive following a 7 trillion yen gain in investments made by its vision funds was almost completely wiped out over the past six months. Son said that he'd got carried away with the tech boom last year, but now feels embarrassed by that reaction. He said, I'm ashamed of myself for being so elated by big profits in the past, and said the headcount at its vision funds may need to be reduced dramatically. Wow, it's um, strong language. Um, is ashamed, embarrassed a reasonable reaction, Nicole? Is, is this kind of language that we'd normally hear in this kind of conversation? Mm, it does feel slightly exaggerated, but maybe he's just being honest for once, which I suppose in a way is actually quite refreshing. You know, we get these spin doctor versions of company performance all the time. Although I'm not sure you can spin doctor away a 19 billion pound loss from one of the biggest VC funds in the world. But but anyway, that, that would be one take on it. <clears throat> um, and then my other thinking on this is it's it just is a bit... It's a bit strange because it's it's not as if we didn't expect a global economic downturn. You know, it didn't come out of nowhere and the enthusiasm was there and the belief in the, you know, the system and the performance of tech was there. There was always anticipation that this would happen. So I I, I kind of hate to say it because it feels really critical, but the word greed springs to mind a little bit for me. Brian, what was your, what was your reaction to this? Yeah, certainly quite extreme language. I think probably more interesting than most results announcements that we see these days. So long may that continue. I think it's very honest and we should probably kind of commend that. But um, in some way, I find it relatively uplifting that one of the biggest funds in the world can fall victim to the same exuberance that individual investors can as well. Um, so I thought that was that was quite uh, interesting. Um, but I'm sure like some of the individual investments that SoftBank made, um, like they are, they abide by the same principles that most investors should in terms of long term and diversification as well. They probably didn't set out to make these individual investments and say these are going to be up every quarter to their investors. Like these are long term investments. Some of them will work, some of them won't. So it's the same principle as individual investors as well. So I kind of find that quite interesting that, as I say, the biggest fund in the world has basically the same issues and, and, and potential problems and pitfalls that, that we all do with our ISAs and pensions. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, it's strong language. It'll be interesting to see, as as he's alluded to, what changes then occur at SoftBank, you know, both internally and then you know externally as well. Um, Nicole, do you think this will change how SoftBank are behaving out in the big bad world? I don't know if you saw, but he also said that you know, reflecting on it, if we had been a little bit more selective and invested properly, it would not have hurt as much. So that leads me to think that the diligence that should have been there wasn't. And I know that over the last couple of years, the race to secure some of these investments between VCs is just so crazy hot and that these deals can happen in a matter of days. So I wonder, you know, there's there's pressure coming from all angles and you would like to think that they would learn from that. But there is the potential that you start with good intention, the race heats up again when the economy is fixed and you see the same types of behaviour. I think the challenge is is that you always need one really strong player to put the best foot forward and then the rest will follow. You know, it's never a collective agreement that we will do things more sensibly, perhaps. Um, so, yeah, it'll be interesting to um, 
to see what happens over, I suppose, the next 18 to 24 months of SoftBank. Absolutely. Um, yeah, Katie, I think, I believe, if I'm right, SoftBank have created a fund in, in LATAM as well. It wouldn't surprise me, obviously, given the, the size of the market. I think it's sort of several billion dollars worth mm. of, of funding for LATAM. So what do you think the, the fallout of this could be for, for LATAM? It's going to be really interesting to see. Um, SoftBank, just as in the rest of the world, were known in Latin America for making these massive bets on 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 companies, almost sort of moonshot-type bets. I remember, um, you know, a few years ago they, they invested in, in Creditas, which is a Brazilian, a Brazilian lender, and part of Creditas' strategy was to move from simply financing things to actually doing things, you know, instead of just financing, giving you a loan for your for your home repairs, they actually sent out a team of architects and whatever to, to actually do the repairs. So it was those kind of really innovative, uh, out of the, out of the box type, um, type bets that, that SoftBank was known for and, and kind of created a lot of, um, a lot of heat in the market. What we saw or what I heard kind of talking to different types of investors in, in Latin America was that there was kind of a tension between the funds that have been investing in Latin America for a long time and see themselves as dedicated LATAM funds versus over the last couple of years, the the bigger global funds uh, of which SoftBank was one kind of swooping in with these massive checks, um, pushing up valuations and um, making some of those deals actually a little unreachable for for the more dedicated funds who felt like they kind of put in the legwork over the years. So that being said, SoftBank does have a Latin American fund. It's going to be interesting to see how it continues to invest in the region um, and whether its strategy changes. Do you think we might see fewer mega rounds going forward? You know, that was something you got, got quite used to, these huge valuations, you think? Oh, we've definitely seen fewer mega rounds in Latin America this year. It was really just kind of Cooled. The market has definitely cooled a lot in Latin America this year, so I would expect that to continue for a little while. Were there any that took you particularly by surprise? Or I think that what we've seen uh, has been the cost of living crisis, the inflation, just the global macro situation and the global economy has impacted in Latin America and people in general, investors in general, are a lot more wary about investing and at the same time some of those global funds um, have taken a step back. So yeah, it's it's last year we saw mega round after mega round. We used to joke internally that there was a new unicorn every week. Um, this year, there's probably been one or two new unicorns in Latin America. Absolutely, um, Nicole. There's some there's some chat about SoftBank going private. Is that something that you've you've had a look at? Or so people close to SoftBank confirmed to the FT that Son had discussed the option of taking SoftBank private on several occasions over the past three years. So the idea had always apparently been rejected, largely in part because of pressure from SoftBank's biggest Japanese banking lenders. So, yeah, I mean, would would any company want to go private after performance like that? I don't think that we'll see it on the horizon anytime soon. But, yeah, I suppose it depends how the rest of the portfolio plays out. And they've had some fantastic bets over the years. So if one of those... Um, you know, comes back with the right return over the next 12 months, then maybe it will be a move that he, he does a 180 on and, and decides to make. Yeah, absolutely. Want to want to watch. Hey, Brian, how much does the behaviour of these big VCs influence others further down the chain or kind of the, the rest of the, the financial ecosystem around them? 
I think it does a bit, but it's more for me to do with the economic conditions. Like it's not purely led by SoftBank's activities. It's more to do with, say, wider things like interest rates and the availability of capital. Um, so I think Katie referenced like we are seeing a lot more restraint and focus on fundamentals when people are are raising, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, given some of the exuberance that we did see over the past uh, the past few years, um, and that may well channel the funding more towards some of the really, really good prospects rather than just focusing on on, on pure growth uh, rather than, I say, fundamentals of companies and, and, and profitability as well. So the hope as well is that it doesn't affect the really smaller companies, uh, things like seed capital. They tend to be smaller checks, so they tend to be a little bit less susceptible to, to economic conditions as well. Um, so, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, now for the part of the show where we quickly round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover but still definitely deserve a shout out. Nicole, do you want to get us started? Sure. Thanks, Kate. So first one up is the Bank of London is planning to boost its US presence with a tech hub in North Carolina. And this came to us from the Retail Banker International. So the Bank of London has unveiled plans to boost its footprint in the US by opening its US global platform and services headquarters in Charlotte, North Carolina. The UK-based clearing bank noted that it will make a multi-million dollar investment and create 350 new jobs across multiple disciplines as part of its expansion plans. New positions at the US division will cover software development, compliance and risk, tech ops, infrastructure engineering and business operations. Bank of London noted that Charlotte is the second largest banking city in the US after New York and opening a division there gives access to a new talent pool. The company did not disclose the cost of the proposed investment. So I did not know that at all, that Charlotte was the second largest banking city in the US after New York. Um, so I suppose it makes sense um, from that perspective. But sort of more importantly, Bank of London focuses on truly game-changing and patented technology particularly around powering the borderless economy of the future. So it's no surprise that they're expanding and expanding in a place that's known for top tech talent in Charlotte. Yeah, I was a bit surprised by the that step about Charlotte. So I've, I've been to their, their airport, but just like, en route to somewhere else, I did not realise I was going through such a such a prominent place. Yeah. So I'll pay more attention. It doesn't get much airtime, does it? But Perhaps it will now if they continue to expand there. Absolutely. Watch watch out for Charlotte. Um, our next story in this section. So the central bank of Kenya doubles down on its position on Flutterwave and Chipper Cash, ordering banks to close fintech accounts. We've taken this one from Business Insider Africa. So the central bank of Kenya, the CBK, has ordered commercial and microfinance banks in the East African country to stop doing business with Flutterwave and Chipper Cash. In a letter from the CBK, chief executives of the country's affected banks were ordered to close all accounts linked to the fintechs, freezing the cash in them and reporting their compliance within seven days. CBK's governor had earlier warned that Flutterwave and Chipper Cash were not licensed to operate remittance services in the East African country. Flutterwave has reacted to the development in Kenya, telling Tech Cable in an email that it initially entered the Kenyan market through partnerships with local lenders. As its operation grew, the company said it then applied for a payment service provider licence and approval to said licence application is still pending. We previously covered the news a court in Kenya had frozen more than $40 million in accounts belonging to Flutterwave under the country's anti-money laundering laws. 
Wow, busy times in Kenya. We covered another, I think, more positive Kenyan fintech story last week. So I suppose just a reminder, if anyone needed one, that this is one of the most interesting markets in Africa at the moment. I feel like we're still a bit too much in the midst of the like the legal wranglings to get a clear sense of what's actually going on. But you know, we obviously know that Flutterwave applied for that license in 2019. So the intention to be regulated seems to be there. Um, but these companies are growing at such an insane rate. So I think Flutterwave raised... $250 million in their Series D in February, and that tripled their valuation in just 12 months. So it must be so challenging to grow that quickly and still be reliant on all these sort of complicated inter interrelated partner licenses. So um, I think you're know, reading the statement that Flutterwave put out in response to this, they finished by saying that they want to collaborate with the regulators to create an atmosphere that fosters innovation, um, which feels to me like a sort of fairly uh, unsubtle hint that they see this as a case of the regulator having some growing pains as they evaluate their role in this sort of rapidly evolving fintech market, sort of looking for that balance between innovation and safeguarding. But yeah, hopefully we'll see a resolution soon, both for the customers who are directly impacted um, and for the international investors who substantially back these these firms. Okay, let's bring everybody back for the final story of the week. This is from CNBC. Domino's Pizza says Adabadeci and flees Italy after failing to win over local customers. Just seven years after making its debut in Milan, Domino's Pizza is saying Adabadeci to Italy. The fast food giant closed the last of its 29 stores after struggling to gain a foothold in the country with locals unconvinced by the American chain. The company's exit from Italy was met with cheers on Twitter, where users mocked Domino's for even attempting to establish a foothold in the homeland of pizza in the first place. Domino's arrived in Italy in 2015 when it already had more than 12,000 stores worldwide. It planned to win customers over with purely Italian ingredients and was being franchised by Italian company ePizza SPA. But in an earnings report last year, the company responsible for the Italian Domino's franchises cited significantly increased levels of competition in the food delivery market for its poor performance, Bloomberg reported. However, shareholders can rest easy. The company still boasts operations in more than 90 nations and brokers remain bullish on the Domino's share price. Um, as we're bringing this back to fintech, having, having a go at bringing this back to fintech, what lessons can fintech take from this, Nicole? Well... I thought it was quite a bold move from Domino's, actually. I thought, you know, as we say in Scotland, on yourself. Um, but, you know, there's a few lessons in there about knowing your customers and, you know, cultural fit and whatnot. But um, now, in all seriousness, I think I was really thinking about the, these parallels between this kind of strategy from Domino's and what it means for fintech and whether there's any part of fintech that just simply can't be touched. And I really don't think that there is. And, you know, as we always say, fintech and digital banking is only 1% finished. And I think that nowhere quite uh, has captured a market so much that there could not be another disruptor that would come in to do it even better. Um, so in uh, the spirit of, of Domino's, um, I liked uh, the boldness, I liked the challenge, I liked their um, drive and ambition to expand. So, yeah, I, I don't think that we are in a position that fintech couldn't, you know, a new fintech couldn't attack another another segment of, of fintech or of that mar or of a market. Katie, what's what's your view? What's the fintech equivalent of Domino's bringing pizza to Italy? I feel like there's some sort of parallel with the blockbuster Netflix story that people always trot out about disruption. You know, like 
Domino's went into the market with these big ambitions, but then the pandemic hit and the food delivery platforms suddenly kind of undercut their, maybe not undercut, the food delivery platforms disrupted Domino's perhaps proposition of, of making delivery easy, right? So I think, uh, you know, we can look at those parallels of, of the user experience and, and, um, and, Industry dis- disruption, I think, uh, uh, with this story, perhaps, if you want to bring it back to, to the tech world. Well, we're trying our best to. Um, <laughs> Brian, any any lessons that you've learned from, from this that you'll be taking back to Moneybox? I think the decision-making was quite impressive in a way. Like To A, go into Italy as a pizza-making chain and take on that industry, like as a bold decision, but also to decide relatively quickly in the corporate world, seven years, that this isn't working and we're, we're going to get out. I think that's quite impressive as well. I think we can learn lessons from that when something isn't working to, to stop it and to, to pivot. But as you said, they're in 90 countries, so I think generally they'll, they'll be fine. There was, there was always a rumor that one of the franchises in Dublin was uh, the busiest in Europe, if not the world. So I've just got a sneaking suspicion that countries like Ireland and the UK will probably make up for, for the failure in, uh, in Italy. I'm doing, I'm doing my best to contribute as well. So, um, I mean, obviously, we need to address the elephant in the room here. You know, were, were pineapples responsible for this, this move? Nicole, where do you stand on pineapple on pizza? Yeah, because they they took that as an option into their Italian menu, right? (laughs) I mean, there's been bold, but then there's just taken it a step too far, I think. I'm I'm not surprised that the Italians were abhorred by this. uh, Personally, I love a good bit of pineapple on a pizza. Can't beat that sweet and savoury. But I can see why it wasn't welcomed with open arms uh, by the Italians. What about you, Katie? Fan? You know, I'm all for exotic toppings on pizzas. I think that, you know, maybe the Italians started the whole pizza thing, but New Zealand does a pretty good, and Tipidians do a pretty good exotic pizza with, you know, I don't know, sweet potato, sweet potato and avocado and all kinds of crazy things on the pizza. So uh, that's, I'm, I'm an adventurous pizza eater. Let's put it like You've that. pushed a cold too far there. Can <laughs> yeah. Avocado on the pizza. I'm not sure no. it would fly in Italy, let's be honest. No, absolutely not. Mm, certainly wouldn't fly in my house, Casey, but we'll, <laughs> let, we'll let you off with it. <laughs> what about you, Brian? So I'm personally pro, uh, which I thought was a more controversial opinion, but after a quick slack poll in the office today, it did lean towards more people being pro than, than against, but some extremely strong views uh, on the topic. Wow, I'm, I'm hoping that we haven't uh, caused a, a culturist shit money box just in your preparing for this show. Well, it then went on to discussions on Yorkshire puddings, and again, some extremely strong views. So yeah, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to shut down that thread quite quickly after the show. Okay, fingers crossed. I mean, my personal take, again, I'm I'm not a big fan of pineapple on pizza. I think all pineapples globally should be reserved for pina coladas, um, and any any put on pizzas are just being just being wasted when they could be making delicious cocktails. Um, but yeah, that's that's my professional opinion. Anyhow, um, thank you. That wraps up today's news show. Thank you so much to today's guests. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Nicole? You can find me on email at nicole.perry at 11fs.com or on LinkedIn under Nicole Perry. Katie, what about you? You can find me on LinkedIn, Katie Janos-Small, and you can check out Upana, that's I-U-P-A-N-A dot com. We offer coverage in English as well as Spanish and Portuguese. So Awesome. Uh, And Brian, what about you? 
Yeah, similar LinkedIn, uh, Brian Burns, and also download the Moneybox app and I'll be there as well, giving my guidance to, to customers as well. Brilliant. Um, and as for me, you can find me on LinkedIn, Kate Moody, and on Twitter at K8Moody. Thank you very much for listening. You can join the conversation on social media or email podcasts at 11 Thank you very much. Goodbye.